As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the show. Brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. Dan Moylan here from The Square Ball, along with Michael Normanson and Phil Hay from The Athletic. Straight from Jesse Marsh's press conference, that's what the Friday show is all about. We are now twice a week, Mondays and Fridays. The Friday show is the post-presser one. After uh, the Bournemouth press conference, we'll be previewing that game across the course of this show. Uh, on the Monday show, we react to the weekend's game that has just gone as well. So we will get back together after the weekend, Phil and I, and we'll chat about what happens in the uh, in the Bournemouth game. You can get all these shows ad-free uh, when you subscribe to The Athletic within The Athletic app and as well as the ad-free pods. Everything Phil writes about Leeds United and uh, participate in the match day discussions both before and after the game with the man himself. You can read it all. Uh, all the football stuff, sport around the world, theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod to sign up. Pound a month for six months at theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. Philip Sinistera, he's broken. Bad news, yes. Um, he's certainly broken for the next three games, so we're not going to see him this side of the World Cup. Um, he has... Uh, problem according to Jesse Marsh affecting the tendons in his foot around about the metatarsal leads I think at the moment I'm minded to think that it's not as severe as it could be but Marsh did ring the alarm bell slightly by saying if these injuries are bad they can lead to quite a prolonged period of time and people remember what happened with Patrick Bamford last season and, and his foot injury I think that was the first thing that you thought of and, and the first thing that came to mind was I guess the fear that even though they've got the World Cup break coming up and, and that's obviously a bonus when it comes to Sinistera's recovery period, it's hard not to question whether or not this might be one of those injuries that drags a little bit and takes some time to get over and, and compromises him uh, on the other side of the new year as well. And it's unfortunate because I've liked a lot of what I've seen from Sinistera and it's been a little bit stop-start for him. He hasn't really been able to find his flow properly. There's been the red card, so the suspension... There'd been other injuries as well. And, and there was the injury, the hamstring problem right in the middle of the summer that meant that his pre-season was interrupted as well. I, I think there's a really talented, very, very good winger there. And we've definitely seen flashes of that. But that's that's him now until the World Cup. He would have been going to the World Cup anyway. So obviously don't have to factor that in and, and factor that, that sort of disappointment into the equation as well. But they were hoping for more news today at some point about him. They'll be crossing fingers in a big way that this is not, something that is going to be problematic for, for much longer than it has to be. And crossing toes as well. Not to be recommended with this injury though. The Liz Frank injury is what was mentioned, which is L-I-S-F-R-A-N-K. As soon as I heard it, I was 
straight onto Wikipedia looking at what that is. And basically, it's where the toes, the metatarsals, join with the, the main bit of the foot. There's some sort of partial tear there, they seem to think, rather than a full rupture, they're, they're hoping. But it does have proper weeks, not months vibes about this. Yes. Um, I think if, if it had been a full rupture, Marsh was saying we'd be talking about a long, fairly long time frame with this. I don't know what that long time frame would involve. I don't know exactly how, how much we'd be talking about. But I don't think he's trying to pretend that it's not insignificant either. Um, and clearly won't be seen in the Bournemouth game this weekend or, or against Wolves or away at Spurs um, next week. I guess, you know, for, for any squad that does have injury problems, concerns, that is going to be one of the, the good things about the World Cup break, that there is time to recuperate in and, and to recover in. But having looked at Sinistera so far, I think you can see the impact that missing pre-season has had on him. He hasn't looked as if the engine is necessarily there yet for a full and, and strong 90 minutes. And this clearly isn't going to help him either. So unfortunate because I do think he's the sort of player who they would have wanted to rely on pretty heavily um, and, and the sort of player who might deliver something in the next couple of games. Um, but as it is, you know, won't be seen. Um, and I suppose it, it does mean that kind of all, all roads when it comes to playing out wide probably point to Somerville after his, uh, his performance at Anfield. I know you shouldn't normally go to Wikipedia for your uh, for your medical advice unless you're uh, properly winging it. But well, well, we were all doing this with Bamford last season as yeah. well, wasn't it? When you get sprung with a medical condition that you've never heard of, the first thing you're doing in the press conference is rapidly Googling to try and find out what this is and, and what it means. It's, it's sort of pointing towards six weeks in plaster without even being able to bear any weight on the foot, and that's minimum before you then get round to recovery. So I wouldn't even like to, I mean, to say. It, surely the suggestion is, though, that he's at the better end of it because he's yeah. been he's not he has been able to put weight on it hasn't he it sounds like he's not been he's not been laid up with his his foot in plaster or anything during this time uh, somebody said to me that he had been in a boot um last week and evidently wasn't involved at Anfield which now makes sense Marsh's impression of it or from what he's been told is that it is at the less severe end but I think they're still waiting to be certain about that and and I guess the one niggle for them will be even if it is at the less severe end does it heal as rapidly as they hope it will does it kind of persist? Does it develop into something worse or does it kind of stay with him as he as he tries to come back? I think ideally, they'll be very much hoping that on the other side of the World Cup, he's either ready, although if we're talking six weeks, then you know it's it will be a push, I think, given that he's already missed a couple, but that he won't be won't be too far away. But it is it, it always worries you slightly with players who miss sustained periods of the summer, but also sustained periods of the season. Because the Premier League is so high-paced and so intense and, and asks so much of players physically that by the midpoint of the season, 75% of the division are up to speed with that, you know, are well into the season with 15, 20 appearances behind them and trying to catch them up and, and get on, on level par with them is not easy. I think there's also the fear that it turns into a Bamford foreshore type thing where it goes from being probably not that bad, could be back in a few weeks to actually... Yes, it's eight weeks, not months. It ticks on to yeah. a year in the end. Weeks, not months, was a, a Grayson. Grayson. It Grayson was a construct of the Grayson era. It, it seemed to be a conscious decision that whenever somebody was injured, rather than giving specific timescales, the, the way to deal with it was to say weeks, not months, which was seen as a kind of optimistic outlook um, and was meant to reassure everybody. The problem was, as soon as you had players who were months, not weeks, when they'd be promised to be weeks, not months, it became a bit of a standing joke. And as you're clearly demonstrating, it's never quite been never quite been forgotten. There wasn't, I don't think it was a weeks, not months vibe from Leeds or from Marsh, particularly today. It was more a case of saying, this can be a bad injury at its worst, but we don't think it is at its worst. Yeah, as you said, fingers crossed. Uh, there were some reflections on Liverpool from Jesse Marsh as well, reiterating his position that it's frustrating that we 
only can perform like that in some games and, and not others. Things we should be further up the table, further along in the progress. And uh, obviously, we need to back it up with a win against against Bournemouth. Um, but going back to, to Anfield, one of the stars of that, the birthday boy, Crescencio Somerville, uh, he spoke quite a lot about Somerville in the presser today, did Marsh. What were your big takeaways from spoke it? Spoke too much, potentially. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to it thinking, hmm. Stop well, dropping him in it. As, as, as a result of what was said after the game on Saturday, when he was very complimentary about Somerville, but did kind of temper what he was saying with a few references to off the field, I wouldn't say issues, but off the field lifestyle, perhaps. It kind of pointed us all in the direction of discipline and professionalism and commitment and and this, that and the other. Um, off the back of that, there were more questions asked about that today. You know, what specifically are you talking about? I think the closest he got to really going into specifics was saying, you know, for a young player, a young player with talent to his mind, he should be first out on the training pitch. He should be first in for training, this, that and the other. He was asked, you know, is, is Somerville turning up late? Is he doing this, that and the other? And there was no reference to, to any of that particularly. But you very much get the sense of a manager who doesn't want a player to score once at Anfield and let his head sail away into the clouds. And I think you get the sense of him perhaps seeing that as a possibility with Somerville in a way that he clearly doesn't with Wilfred Nonto, as an example. He, he spoke about Nonto being very grown up for the age of 18. He spoke about Nonto and Somerville becoming good friends and Nonto being a really good influence on Somerville. And actually, if you revisit the piece that we wrote about Nonto not so long after he signed, that was the general theme of it, that he's an incredibly mature teenager who seems to know his own mind and understand what's best for his career and to be very devoted when it comes to when it comes to it comes to claiming that. I can't say that that's not true of Somerville. I have spoken to somebody who knows who knew Somerville when he was younger and at Feyenoord and, and they did say he was always, you know, in terms of the club, he was always the best in his age group. You know, every time he moved up an age group, Somerville was the outstanding player or, or one of the players who jumped out. And they made the point that when that happens, it's kind of natural that, you know, in certain periods, you do start to think to yourself, oh, it's quite quite easy. This sort of got it made and, and this, that and the other. But it, it, it's kind of, kind of contradiction in terms at the moment, isn't it? Because on the one hand, Marsh has been saying recently that he's been training so well, he's been performing so well that it's become almost impossible to leave him out. And that's why he's been getting games. You know, that's why he's kind of jumped ahead. I don't doubt that Sinistera being injured at Anfield probably influenced that selection decision as well. But nonetheless, there were other ways that Marsh could have gone about it. He didn't have to pick Somerville. So yeah, you, you've got him saying on the one hand, you know, he, he needs to keep his head screwed on essentially, mm. feet on the ground. Uh, but on the other hand, he clearly thinks that that Somerville is at the point where he can be pushed now, and um, pushed in a, in a first team sense. And he said that he'd been on top of him in training this week. That Somerville had, had trained well. So I don't think it's the I, I don't think it's necessarily a, a big deal, particularly. But it is it, it is always quite noteworthy. I think when somebody gets singled out for that sort of chat, because it tells you that it's very much in the head coach's mind. Does Jesse Marsh follow him on Instagram? Do you know? <laughs> um, uh, I know where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> this this was the question. It was Somerville's twenty first birthday on Sunday, which was obviously beautifully timed. Um, after the uh, the game against Liverpool um, on the Saturday night and his, his winning goal. I was told that he was planning to head back to Rotterdam to see his family um, for a very short break in between training. Mars said that he hadn't gone back to Rotterdam um, for training. <laughs> there are, uh, sorry, he hadn't gone back to Rotterdam for um, birthday celebrations. There are pictures on Instagram which look like they're from Holland. Um, <laughs> Why? <laughs> I want, to, I want to see a newspaper held up with the headline and that, and that date, Phil, before you can 
well, they, well, accuse this, is, this boy of being wayward. Dad said, I can't go to the party, but I'm going anyway. This is it. This is it. Who who knows? But I think, all in all, he seems to be, he does seem to be much further forward in the queue than he was last season. And I know Marsh was talking about the Palace game where Somerville had been sort of in the mix and knocking on the door and this, that and the other. But it's felt as if this season he's been in far more serious contention than he was previously. And Marsh didn't go as far as saying that it's his shirt to lose, but it might be that kind of moment for him at the moment. Well, but since he's there injured, that does give him an opportunity, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, and, and he might get a might get a run of games now. And I guess how he how he goes from here and how he settles is going to depend on how those games look. You know, if a, a group of say three or four matches now at the end of them, on you know over the piece has some of it all looked good? Has he looked effective? Has he looked like a Premier League player? Or over the piece is there just really the goal at Anfield that that stands out? And you know that. At this age, when you're trying to push through, that's pretty important. I think he needs a run and, and probably deserves one as well because he he has always stood out every single time I've seen him in the under-21s. You, you do watch him in those games and and comes to the conclusion that he's essentially too good for that level. So, and it, But when he's had first-team opportunities, they've tended to be coming off the bench for 20 minutes here and there. So I think it's it's probably the right thing for him to have a, a decent stint of games. I think the other thing is the, the, this emerging talent project or strategy that Leeds have at academy level so signing you know Gil Hart and um, Matteo Joseph Sonny Perkins JB and, and others um, clearly Somerville as well if they are going to develop into regular first team players then they do have to play you know they're, they're not going to make that rapid jump just by playing 21's football so there has to be some progression for them there has to be some some opportunity for them as there was for Nonto at Anfield as well but yeah I mean I, I guess from Somerville's, Somerville's perspective he scored at Anfield, winning goal at Anfield the day before his 21st birthday, which is about as good as it's it's going to get. Sinistera is injured, so there is now a, a gap opened up. It's it's what you would ask for. And with reference to the photos on Instagram, just to clear that particular one up, Michael, you showed me a photo before, <laughs> which uh, really tickled my bones, um, because it is of Crescencio Somerville with his arm around somebody, um, and, in, and it's tagged with reference to his birthday. So he clearly went, didn't he? That's why... We're just having a bit of fun with it, but the, the funny element of the photo is <laughs> just billowed face, as if as if the person yeah. he's with has said, "Don't, I don't want my face on this." But the the only other thing in the picture is him. So it's just, <laughs> just people saying it's just don't it, upload that it's, one. It's almost like a photograph in yeah. newspaper where somebody's been charged or accused of some offence, and they've said <laughs> it's crime watch, blur, crime watch. Yeah, yeah. blur out the face because they're nothing to do with this. You know, don't don't want to do it that way. Yeah, that was funny. And, and your crime is is breaking curfew. Um, Melier, we had words about Melier as well. Um, Good performances coming together, a crescendo of performance. Marsh described um, his performance at Anfield. Talent is high, but will he be in France's World Cup squad? We have a goalkeeping expert at the Athletic, Matt Podrowski, who at some point very soon we're, we're going to write on Melier. We've been talking over the last couple of days and he's absolutely convinced from what he's seen that there's been an improvement in Melier's game this season, which I think we all feel. Um, but from a technical perspective, he's definitely seeing that. Melier's one-on-ones were there again at Anfield, such a, a big part of his game. I wrote about Melier in the France squad probably about a month ago, a month and a half ago now, and from talking to people in France and various people who, who know Melier, the, the impression they were getting was that the ideal scenario for France was that he stuck with the 21s and played um, in the Under-21 Championship next summer, European Under-21 Championship next summer, before graduating up to the senior squad. I mean, clearly Hugo Lloris at Spurs will be first choice assuming he's fit in Qatar, but he's not going to go on forever. You know, he's starting to get into his late 30s now and there will come a point at which um, which he retires. 
So Marshall was saying today that he'd spoken to Millie himself about it. Millie had said it was quite unlikely or he thought it was quite unlikely that um, that he would make the squad. The interesting thing is that um, Mike Magnan, um, one of the more senior French keepers behind Loris, who's at AC Milan, was injured during the last international break. Um, as far as I can tell, hasn't been involved with AC Milan since. And obviously the World Cup is coming around quite soon. So it might be that there is a gap to be filled. It might be that um, Didier Deschamps has to think seriously about that. But he does have more experienced options that he could turn to. And I think you'd probably be talking about third choice in any case. Um, so, you know, all things being equal, it'll be Loris who plays in this tournament. I think it'll be Melier going to the under-21s championships, the Euros um, next summer. And then from there, playing like this, all bets are off, I think. We'll get around to the Bournemouth preview a little bit later on. And uh, the comments in particular, I think that we're interested about the tactics is the first proper insight we've had into how the team play and how perhaps Jesse Marsh might want them to play slightly differently in terms of the vertical passes. We'll do all that in part three. First, um, a quick word on just the, the general spirit in the camp. Has it been more relaxed was the question that was put to, to Jesse Marsh. And yes and no, still need to push the process. Certainly the press conference was more relaxed today. You didn't feel the same level of pressure that was there last Thursday, which is understandable and, and completely you know, completely flows on from a, a fantastic win at Liverpool. I mean, I said this on Twitter afterwards. You can't beat around the bush with this. They played incredibly well at Anfield, and it was it was a fantastic result just when when it was needed. So that will be that will be a shot in the arm for everybody. It was exactly what was needed. It will pour some some cold water on the pre, on on the pressure that was on everybody. I think it makes Bournemouth less pressurised without it being in any way pressure free. It's still, to my mind, a game they they absolutely have to win. But everybody who talks about Marsh always says that one of his big strengths is communicating internally. It's, you know, man management is something that, that he leans on heavily. And I think he does try hard not to let the environment become particularly stressful if, if he can avoid it. I think it, it's inevitable um, and will have been inevitable after the Fulham game and in the week, you know, leading up to Leicester and, and afterwards as well, that it will have been tense and it will have been stressed and people will have been concerned. I mean, clearly the, the club without you know, deciding to, to abandon support of Marsh were worried themselves and, and there were changes talked about last week obviously no longer going to the US and the World Cup will stay in Europe and from what I'm told they're, they're talking about playing a friendly out in Spain during December like quite a few other clubs are, are either doing or, or thinking of doing um, the, the amount of holiday they get will be lessened there has been I think this drive to say look we have to find some things that can change to make this better but I don't know about you, I, I didn't feel that there was any change at all at Anfield. I felt like it was a, a coach very much sticking to his guns, which seems to be becoming a, a recurring theme at Leeds. But, you know, the system was much the same. The, the personnel he used was much the same as you as you, as it had been and very similar to what you thought it would be. The, the tactics were there. What I think was different was that the energy of the 90 minutes sustained far better than it had in previous matches. There wasn't really any... It, there were points where Liverpool came on strong and Liverpool were always going to come on strong and, and have chances, but I didn't get the sense of Leeds sagging at any point. I didn't get the sense of the air going out of the balloon and the press was terrific. Um, Tyler Adams, I thought, made a huge difference coming back. It just worked. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Tyler Adams then, Phil. Talk to me about Tyler Adams because you've written about him this week uh, and he's quickly becoming one of the standout players in this Leeds United side and a commanding midfield performance against Liverpool. What did you guys make of him or make of the signing when he joined from Leipzig? There was a lot of talk about Mo Kamara at uh, RB Salzburg and somebody the club did look at. But in the end, it was um, it was Adams from Leipzig that they went for probably the player that Marsh knows best or, or has worked with most closely through his career. What, what did you think? I consulted YouTube, as you tend to do under these sort of circumstances. I presume everybody does the same, no? It's, it's why scout for us these days. But I think if you're an, a dunce like me, then it's essentially the same difference. That's yeah. just YouTube with a budget. Yeah, <laughs> that's all it is. You just, and, you've just got to log in. And annotations, yeah. <laughs> but um, having seen Kamara on YouTube, he looked slightly more dynamic than Adams, which is why I think people thought he would be the, the go-to guy and why people were interested in him. But you cannot argue with what Adams has actually done since. And it was almost being used as a stick to beat him and Marsh with because they knew one another, you know, the old Red Bull plan just being transplanted over into Ellen Road. But actually, Kamara didn't prove to be more expensive than Adams, which was another kind of alluring thing from a fan's point of view, the price point. And Adams has well, been brilliant, hasn't he? At the time, Kamara would have been slightly dearer, but you weren't talking a huge amount. And it wasn't as if Adams was cut price. He was 20 million euros plus, you know, it was a relatively expensive deal um, by Leeds standards, certainly. When you look at Adams, he reminds me not in style at all, but in the the amount of attention, I guess, that he draws. He reminds me a lot of Matthias Clake in that you can watch games in which he completes 90 minutes without the eye being drawn to him too much, without your attention straying in that direction, without him kind of doing the things that write headlines and, and make people sit up. But when you watch the games back, um, or, or when you look for him specifically, or when you start to cut through the numbers... You see how involved he is, which is pretty much wall-to-wall right the way through an individual match. A very specific type of player and really disciplined midfielder that's sitting between the defensive penalty box and, and the attacking penalty box. He has very, very few touches in the final third. He doesn't have a huge number in Leeds' defensive third either. It's it's all kind of in that zone behind the halfway line and out to, to the right as well when he's in a two with Mark Rocker, with, with Rocker covering the left side of the field. And I, as I went through the numbers, starting to find that you know most touches per 90, Tyler Adams. Second most attempted passes, Tyler Adams. Second most passes completed, Tyler Adams. And you start to get the impression of somebody who is pretty much involved in everything. You know, is pretty much central to, to everything that Leeds do and, and right in the thick of their play. I think we touched on this on Monday, but one of the things I loved about his performance at Anfield, and, it, and it's funny because somebody in my office said, is that a bit of a coming-of-age performance for Adams? And I said, well, I think it would be a bit unfair to say that because, you know, he's USA men's team captain. He's had three or four seasons in the Bundesliga. He played in MLS. He won the Supporters' Shield with New York Red Bulls. So he does have a pedigree and he does have a track record. But to my mind, it's the best he's played in the Premier League and the best he's played for Leeds. And what I liked most about it was the, the crunching tackle with Fabinho and the, the willingness to go 
face to face with Andy Robertson. I don't know if you saw the the little chat he was having with Jordan Henderson towards the end of the game. I think um, Liverpool had just won a corner and they were over near the corner flag and the two of them were kind of going at each other a little bit. And it seemed to me from watching it that Adams persisted so much that eventually even Henderson, who's you know vastly experienced, wily guy, just kind of said, listen, let's just agree to disagree and <laughs> and leave it. You know, let's just, whatever, let's just, um, let's just get on with it. And it took me back to a chat I had with Mike Grella uh, after Adams first signed and he was talking he said you know Grella said big tackles never my game and and you know all those of us who saw Grella at Leeds will, will you know bear that out remember that was not was not that type of player but he said from a really young age Adams would dive into challenges where you just thought well you know just no no fear at all and Grella told this great story about a fight in the dressing room where an older player had to go at Adams um, and had basically taking him on over something it became physical they started throwing punches and Adams ended up beating this guy up and again Grella said just seeing him do that and picking the moment where he thought actually I'm going to stand up for myself here made you realise what what he was made of and he did give the impression I thought throughout the Liverpool game of somebody who just loves to lead from the front somebody who loves to be in the thick of it and I think I think if if Marsh is to get through this spell and, and if it is to start working for him and if the form is to pick up longer term, I get the feeling that Adams is going to be 100% critical to that. I, he just feels at his best, probably the most important player in this team. I think what I love about him, if you can ignore his physical appearance, is that he, if you were just watching what he did, you'd assume he was a sort of a 30-year-old midfielder who's been playing in the Premier League for ages, but you know he's, he's 23 years old and he's, he's only just turned up this season. But I don't think you'd notice that at all in the way he plays. Well, you would never sign Adams for deadly attacking play you'd never sign him for goals or assists I was having a look and he's got two shots on goal this season neither on target his um, expected goals tally is 0.04 which is basically zero so you're not <laughs> you know you're not getting any 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 of that out of him particularly but he does create chances and is I mean we're getting a bit technical in the metrics here but there's a, a, a metric called shot creating actions which looks at the two defensive moves before um, a, a, a shot and goal or an effort and goal is, is taken and he, he scores higher than Mark Rocker in that respect. And it's not, you know, the numbers are not too shabby. And I think, again, it feeds into the impression of a player who probably contributes in possession more than you realise. I think when the opposition have got the ball, it becomes far more obvious to see what Adams is doing. He's very, very good at counter-pressing. We were, someone was saying that Statsbomb have got him as the, the best performing player, um, Premier League player in his position for, for counter-presses, which is clearly a massive part of, of Marsh's tactics. And, you know, that that is very easy to see with him, I think, the big hits, the tackles, the, the pressing, the covering, everything else. But actually, on the ball, he's probably a little bit more effective or, or a little bit more dangerous than you would give him credit for, just to the naked eye. One thing I really do like about Adams is the way that he kind of simplifies the game. He he falls back on some, you know, like basic football concepts like just play the way you're facing. He doesn't take unnecessary risks when he's in possession. And like you say, it's, it doesn't make for the most dynamic attacking midfielder, but it makes for a midfielder who's consistent and rarely makes any mistakes. He's not been perfect. And I think if you look back to Leicester's second goal um, down at the, the King Power, he was caught trailing there as Leeds were opened up on, on the right-hand side um, and Harvey Barnes finished on the other side of the pitch but one of the things he did really well at Liverpool was to avoid and this again comes back to his general positioning and, and his discipline at sitting where he where he needs to sit and being where he needs to be and also beyond that the team knowing where he's, he's going to be it was very rare for Liverpool to turn the ball over 
and to find Adams trapped upfield um, or, or badly out of position. There was very little he could do when Leeds were exposed out wide or exposed by balls over the top, you know, balls that sort of took out the midfield and, and put pressure directly on Marsh's defence. But when it came to actually holding his ground and featuring in what I thought was a really, really good defensive shape that Liverpool just never worked out really. I mean, again, important to not to pretend that Liverpool didn't have a bundle of chances at Anfield because they definitely did. But I think irrespective of how their season's going, it would be, I guess, a bit disingenuous to say that you should go there and have a really easy night. You're always going to, you're always going to have moments against Liverpool where it becomes difficult and, and where you feel as if you're bailing water. But they did that really well and I thought he he did as well. And as I say, it, it's just, it it's that effectiveness, I think, in an area where Leeds over the years, certainly since 2018, have been so strong because of Calvin Phillips and had to make sure that they found something, not identical, and I don't think they are identical, they, they're definite similarities in the way they play. But I don't think with Adams you get the kind of range of passing that you got with Phillips. You know, Phillips was very good at picking out longer balls. I think if you're being fair, you would say that the, the way the team's set up now, as opposed to the way it was set up previously, doesn't allow for or really invite or look for um, those sort of passes. So perhaps Adams does have that in his game. I, I Something tells me that it might be that, that Phillips is the slightly better ball player when it comes to actually pulling the strings and, you know, running the game with the ball at your feet. But I've been really impressed by Adams and I just think they've they've got a good competitor there um, who, who should be coming into his prime. It is always dangerous. It's folly, isn't it, to make direct comparisons with previous players and historical figures. But do you see similarities in him and David Batty? I think so, yeah. We talked about the Liverpool game as well. His He's almost sort of disinterest in getting involved in anything properly messy because Batty used to do that. He'd go up to the line and then he'd tend to stop. He'd just pull himself back and I think Adams does that quite well. He gets involved without necessarily letting things bother him in the same way as Batty used to do. Like he doesn't he doesn't seem to like he's on I think he's only picked up a couple of bookings this year. He doesn't seem like someone who'll go and get daft bookings in the same way maybe as uh, as some players do. Batty's body language to me was always that of someone who who I think you used the word indifferent there. It was just in any sort of circumstances, it was all the same to him. You know, shrug of the shoulders. It was all fine. And yeah, but, and Adam's a little bit like that. I was telling you what Adam said in the, what somebody heard him say in the tunnel near the dressing room after the game. Just that thing of, right, three points, let's go. You know, that's that done. I see you've avoided Um, the swearing this week. Yeah, I thought you can get the explicit (laughs) tags off, especially since we're, (laughs) we're doing it on video. But that, I mean, I I don't know how easily you can compare Adams and, and Batty. And I don't think, I'm, I didn't see enough of Batty week to week to be able to go down that rabbit hole at all. But I think the interesting thing about Phillips was that he didn't play much under Marsh. But I was never certain, and I don't think on the evidence it was proven, that he was totally suited to the system that was developing or the system that was going to be used. It's not to say it couldn't have worked. And the experiment wasn't long enough with him um, to be to be certain either way. But I just don't think that Phillips was going to be as pivotal for Marsh as he had been for his predecessor because of the change in formation and the change in tactics. I feel as if Adams and Rocker, when they're both at the best, are a pretty good combination. And it's not yin and yang because actually they, they do quite a lot of similar things. And, and Rocker, Rocker's range of passing is is definitely longer and I, and I think slightly better. But Adams is a pretty progressive passer as well. The stats are not wildly different. He, he passes forward more often than not. 
it's not as if they've had a perfect season and Leeds quite clearly have not had a perfect season. But I think all in all, Adams has not had a bad start at all. Yeah, with the comparisons with Phillips, like if you had to distill Phillips's game down into like one sentence, one description, it was that he would pick the ball up deep and then he'd look for those long-ranging passes yeah. to the wings, which is not what Marsh's teams do. They're trying to play through the lines, aren't they? So you can see the difference immediately. And also, you know, Phillips used to come deep as a sort of almost like a third centre-back, sometimes off the ball, but sometimes when the lead centre-backs had it, he would drop deep to take, you know, take possession in that really low-lying area and then dictate from there. Rocker has tended to do far more of that than Adams and it's not really what Adam, Adams is, is looking for or, or trying to do. Um, so it has evolved in that sense. But you, I think I think some of the signings over the summer were good. We've said this a few times, despite the criticism of no centre-forward, no left-back. I don't think it changes the fact that some of the players who came in were talented players. We'd apply that to Sinistera 100%, even though you know we're not going to see him now until probably January at the earliest. But the same applies to, to Adams and to Aronson. Christensen has definitely come on in the past three or four weeks. You're starting to see far more of the player that you went on YouTube uh, and uh, and also Scout, The player that you saw at Salzburg, you know, could defend, but also spent a lot of the game getting up the wing, um, looking for chances to cross the ball. And Marsh, I asked Marsh about Christensen. He said he just felt that they'd been... You know, in and out of possession, there'd been a bit more aggression from him. The aggression has started to, to come out of him and it's hard not to agree with that. When it comes to aggression, actually, you think about Adams and, and you were talking there about him getting involved in mischief, Michael. You're starting to see the things that make him tick, I think, when you're watching him play. And it is that, I think I think he probably feeds off that conflict up to a certain point. He uses it as his fuel. I mean, we spoke to Eddie Gray, didn't we, um, some time ago and asked him about Mark Viduka and he, and he kind of skirted around the issue because Eddie is a, he's a gentleman isn't he to, to the very last but we were speaking about um, when Mark Viduka was playing up front for Leeds and he used to sort of get up in his face before the matches and tell him he was no good and this this defender's got the measure of you you won't score today and, and that was the thing that made Viduka tick I think with Adams can you see that just that conflict is kind of his fuel he's massively driven we, the first time we interviewed him he was lovely and personable he's got an amazing broad grin on him and he's just really really good company and people will say to you that him and Marsh are very similar in personality. Marsh is a massively competitive, driven guy. And go back again to the stories of him, you know, fist fights in, in MLS with some of his teammates, Marsh, that is. Um, so I, I was asking Adams, are you two similar? And, and some of the American writers, um, football writers, soccer writers at, at The Athletic had said to me, you know, ask him about his relationship with Marsh because it is a pretty key part of, of his story so far. So, you know, are you two similar? And he said, well, yes, but I'm more competitive. And he was <laughs> laughing, but he was serious at the same time. He, you know, he, I, think he, I think he genuinely meant that. And I think that's absolutely true, um, that he just has that kind of nasty competitive streak in him, but nasty in the, in the right sense. And that was what Grella said about him. Grella said, you know, this guy just isn't really scared of anybody, doesn't really do reputations without being like, you know, ridiculously disrespectful, but he will get involved with Henderson. He will dive in on Fabinho, he will go face-to-face with Andy Robertson. You know, it's it's not too much of a problem. And I think you definitely need that to win somewhere like Anfield, but you need it as well when you're out of form. When you're out of form and you're struggling for results, that is exactly the sort of player who coaches look, you know, look for, lean on and depend on to come up with something. How far do you think you can go at Leeds? It's very difficult to say because it's going to depend on where Leeds go, really, isn't it? I think... There's a lot more he can do in the game, certainly. And he's, you know, he's 23. He's been captain in the USA. 
that's a, a young age um, to be taking the armband at a level like that. And I think you're already starting to think that if there was to be a transition at some stage soon from Liam Cooper with the captaincy, I mean, Cooper's still under contract, but, you know, if further down the line, Leeds find themselves looking for a new captain, even if it's a new match day captain, if, you know, Cooper was to get usurped at, um, on the left side of the two centre-backs, then at the moment, it's quite hard to think of where the arrow points beyond Adams. He looks like by far the most obvious candidate. I think if Leeds are... Uh, to become a good team or to be a good team in two or three years' time, um, then it wouldn't be much of a surprise if he was part of that. I think he, he is, in his own way, very, very talented player. No, knows his limits, knows his strengths and, and absolutely plays to them. Given the type of player he is, I think it's hard to judge his ceiling as well because he does, in some ways, he does quite basic things, but it's doing those basic things at higher and higher levels because he could, you can imagine him slotting into a Champions League team and looking much as he does for us, just doing the basic stuff really well. Like, I guess like someone like Kante has done over the years where he just is, he just rises to whichever level he's put at. Well, I remember somebody saying to me, genuinely, and I'm, I'm sure this is true, that Bielsa used to say that he thought Adam Forshaw was tailor-made, a fit, 100% fit Adam Forshaw was tailor-made for a Champions League team because the sort of things Forshaw did were exactly what you wanted around about players with huge amounts of flair and, and talent and everything else. Which just goes to show that, you know, who's to say if Bielsa was right? Because obviously Forshaw hasn't been tested at that level and realistically isn't going to be tested at that level. But Bielsa didn't tend to say those things on on a whim. And I guess, that it, you know, it's kind of that thing with Adams as well. Yes, it is simplistic, his play. It's kind of simple approach. But in no small way, I think that's down to the, the tactical system. And it's not the, necessarily the case that if he was in a slightly more expansive team that he wouldn't be able to fit into that as well but physically he can clearly cope no problem at all I think he's got a footballer's brain on him and, and technically looks good enough for the Premier League definitely Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Let's get into Bournemouth then, Phil. They are improving as a team, says Jesse Marsh in the uh, in the Thursday press conference. Picked out counter-attacking as one of their big strengths. Hard defending, quick to counter. And the, uh, the gaffer there has done a great job of taking them out of a moment they had earlier in the season under Scott Parker, which was a 9-0 pasting was his exit, wasn't it? That was his, uh, his moment to leave the Bournemouth job. That was at Anfield. They are a weird team, Bournemouth. There's been quite a lot of chat over the last couple of weeks with Marsh under pressure about Leeds an- analytics, so their numbers and their stats and what they point to. And a general feeling amongst analytical people that the stats were far better than the league position. Um, Marsh, again, was alluding to that today, you know, saying we, we should have 
been higher up the league. We should have more results than we have had. Um, we should be doing to teams, um, other teams, what we were able to do to, to Liverpool at Anfield. Bournemouth are the complete opposite. 13 points already this season and, you know, went very close to taking another three against Tottenham last weekend. Um, but one of the things that people tend to lean on when they, they analyse how teams are doing or what the general picture is starting to look at is they look at expected goals difference, which is your expected goals for uh, minus your expected goals against. So in other words, are you looking like a team who concede more often than you score or are you looking like a team who will score more than you concede? It's worth just, um, sorry to interject, I was just going to say, just to again briefly explain for anybody who doesn't know what XG is about, it's about measuring the quality of the chances. So like how many times has that chance been scored from that position by that team before is about yes. the size of it, yeah. Uh, so when, so it's, when, it's about how roughly how good your attacks are and so, your defence. So once you get 10 games in or 12 games in, um, your stats people can, to their mind, accurately say this is how many goals a, a club should have scored by this point. This is on the basis of the quality of chances. This is how many they should have conceded. And you can start to draw together a picture of whether they're performing well um, or performing badly. So to give you an example with Leeds. So to pull up the stats here, Leeds at the moment, um, this is FB Ref who do who use Opta's numbers um, uh, pretty much as accurate as you're, you're likely to get, used by a lot of people in the game. Their um, expected goals at this stage is 17. Their expected goals against is also 17. So they have a... a Ultimately, a ratio of zero. You know, they're kind of right in the middle of conceding as many as they um, as they score if everything was going according to the stats. And what you obviously find is the teams who are struggling tend to have a minus um, differential. The teams who are doing very well um, tend to have a positive differential. Bearing in mind that obviously Leeds were 19th before the Liverpool game, that gives you some idea of, of I guess, where they are in comparison to where they should probably be. Bournemouth... I've scored 12 goals, but have an expected goals ratio of 7.5. Um, they've conceded 28 goals, so a, a huge number. But they have an expected goals against uh, ratio of 21.3, which is massive at this stage. You know, after after 13 matches, they're, they're shipping an awful lot so of is goals. So is that to say they should have shipped they, as many as they have? or They've shipped far more than they should have done. Right. 28 as opposed to 21. But 21 is still the worst number in the, the division. By rights, they should have conceded the most in the Premier League. And, and obviously they, they have with 28. But it's suffice to say that even though they are sat in the table 14th with 13 points, if you were basing this on actual performance, you would have them basically at the, the bottom of the league. I mean, they even when if you move on to things like shots on goal, and everything else and, and how you know how they've done so far Liverpool most shots on goal this season 212 Bournemouth have had 97 Leeds are kind of in the middle 151 shots on target for Bournemouth and bearing in mind that they've scored 12 goals so far this season 35 shots on target um, again as opposed to Liverpool they've had 74 Leeds back in the middle um, with around about 50 they are not creating very much Bournemouth but somehow they've quite drastically overperformed which it goes to explain or some way to explaining why there are a lot of people out there who think when push comes to shove and it comes to the crunch this season Bournemouth will finish in the bottom three so what you've done there is exactly what we did on our show this week which is give us all the reasons why Leeds United should win this on a statistical basis um, but no I think more a case of why Leeds at present on a statistical basis should finish ahead of Bournemouth in the division very clever, Philip. Well yes, so he stepped out of that yeah. one nicely. No, yes. I've, I've, cap, cap completely doffed there. Well done. <laughs> but that, but that, that's it. You see, so they, they are a kind of strange side. Yeah, 
Um, this quick counterattacking, then let's pull on that thread for a second because this is uh, this is Legion Knights kryptonite, isn't it? These quick counterattacks, chuck the ball over the top, catches high up the field, and all that. It has been a problem, um, and I think is going to be a problem in these sort of games because it stands to reason, and I think we'd all anticipate that the balance of the game will be Leeds pushing forward, Leeds laying on pressure, Leeds looking for chances, Bournemouth sitting deep, much as Fulham did, but then breaking out and trying to um, make the most of the space in behind, of which there tends to be plenty with um, with this Leeds side. I think you are, it's not to say that you're totally safe with Adams in the team, I think you're safer with him in the lineup um, as opposed to him out of it. And Mars said afterwards at Liverpool that he thought against Fulham, Leeds were kind of waiting to lose that game. Whereas he thought against Liverpool at one all similar scoreline, that they were actually looking to win it. And it maybe wasn't a coincidence that they had Adams back in the team. I'm not saying Adams has been perfect this season or the results have been brilliant with him in the side. But perhaps it did make a difference that when they needed to be driven on, there was somebody else in there who was inclined to do that. But yeah, I think counter-attacking will be Bournemouth's friend if they can make it work for them this weekend. I mean, one of the things that doesn't measure, though, is the quality of the players on the pitch, does it? Because I went to um, see Man City against Sevilla last night in the Champions League. And I went in there with an open mind to try and figure out what is it that they do that makes them so good versus what we do and we're struggling in the bottom third of the table, whatever it might be. And I came away from it in the the most simple terms thinking, they've just got dead good players. All all their players are just dead good. Does it have to be any more complex than that? It it actually doesn't because I was was looking at the system and where they run and, and where they position themselves and they do try and make the pitch very, very big. And I noticed that Sevilla actually contained them quite well for a bit and they set up quite narrow, did Sevilla, and managed to, to choke them quite a lot in that first half. But in the end, they just brought on loads of good players and scored three times from a losing position. And it, the game was actually made more interesting by the fact that they went behind and had to start chasing it. But in the end, it was it felt fairly routine. And I, I do wonder as well, because the atmosphere was quite flat there yesterday and people, you know, take the mickey out of the Etihad and Man City fans and stuff. And it did feel very kind of touristy and, and quite flat, but it was a dead rubber at the end of the uh, the group stage there. They're almost too good at Man City. Well, it feels like there's no jeopardy there. Do you, remember, do you remember when they beat Leeds 7-0 and it took that De Bruyne hit for the, the stadium to really go up and that was De Bruyne doing what he does which was 25 yards out going, I might as well just stay this in the top corner and did. And, you know, you sat there and, and I said to Sam Lee, our Man City um, writer, you get to watch this every week. It's <laughs> absolutely unbelievable. Just players doing doing stuff like that. You still need coaching and you still need a plan and you need discipline and you need shape and everything else. You need to know where everybody is on the field so that that it all works. But when it comes to executing things, it is far easier to execute tactics and plans if you have the most elite players. The guy who runs our kickboxing club knows absolutely nothing about football. But he said to me the other day, who's that that guy who plays up front for um, Man City? I said, Haaland. He said, yeah. And he just said to me, he said, he's absolutely unbelievable and that's that, that's from somebody who knows nothing about football who can just look at it and say he's just really good yeah it's just really good that's the yeah. thing I watched him last night and I thought okay there's not a single one of you has got caught in possession at any point and when you come under pressure in tight areas which happened quite a lot in there it was compact in the midfield they all knew what to do yeah. I mean there was, there was a point at which Sevilla had four men pressing um, Man City trying to pass out from the back in the first half they just made it look easy. They, they managed to just beat the press so easily. The four players right camped on the edge of Man City's box. And they're just like, dead good. If better players are the key then, I'm, I'm going to set you up for a fall here. 
do we have better players than Bournemouth? Are, well, there, that, are there any of their players you would want? And, not, if, and if so, are we just going to win this game? You're not necessarily setting me up for a fall because that was actually what I was skirting around is that thankfully we're playing Bournemouth who if the underlying metrics are represented on the pitch and they're not great at taking chances, creating a number of chances, whatever it might be, it's Bournemouth's players, it's not Man City's. And that, that seems to be genuinely the like the qualitative difference. So it's, you know, there might well be dangerous counter-attacking but it might just be that they've done more counter-attacking than something else yeah and, uh, and what, you, what you're relying on is them not being good enough to finish these chances I, I think and poor decision making uh, as, you, as you start to go further down the division um, further down the Premier League individually if you match up players you pick out best player from a team and match them up to somebody in another team you can see big big difference there but I don't I think the difference becomes less pronounced than when you're talking about Haaland and you know the, the players of um, Cancelo Foden players of that ilk who are, De Bruyne you know, do you see yeah, De Bruyne's like, assist but, 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 ridiculous but that's it but he, does, it. But he does it all the time yeah, you know he just, yeah. just kind of does it and then goes yeah well this is know, what I do yeah. yeah, this is what I do people right. <laughs> you know, Kevin De Bruyne yeah. absolutely sickening really so the gulf there can be enormous, even though you're talking about two clubs who are perhaps separated by, say, 10 places in the same division. You know, it's a massive, massive gap. Whereas as you get further down, I think a lot does start to depend on application and the ability on the day to hit your peak, you know, and, and to, to absolutely stay at your peak and everybody to do it en masse. Um, and that has been, that's been difficult for Leeds, but I think the bigger issue for them has been the days when it hasn't worked tactically. Um, and that that kind of goes back to what I was saying about City. They are coached. You know, they are coached really well to do all this stuff. The added bonus for Guardiola is that on top of his <laughs> genius mind and ideas is that he has players who he can say, go and do this. And they say, yeah, no problem. Yeah, they've got a £50 million player minimum in every position. Yeah. Or kids from the best academy probably in the whole world. Absolutely. It's absolutely wild to to look at that. But just going on to the, the tactical aspect of it, what you were saying there about Leeds struggling, let's go back to Marsh's comments then from the presser today. And he said that we've always had a tendency to go direct when we win the ball. And it isn't the case that we always need to do that. So what do they do? Because what, what I see when I watch Leeds play football is they do, they either get it and try and boot it between the lines, possibly sometimes too quick, or they mess around with it at the back, go between fullbacks, centre-backs, trying to pull who, the attackers on and then who, try and get around it. Who recently have you seen doing that against Leeds? Liverpool. Can't. Yeah. That's what, that's what happened to Liverpool, was that they they got stuck recycling the ball or rotating the ball between Thiago or Fabinho, the centre-backs, occasionally um, the full-backs, but the ball just going back and forward, back and forward, round and round. And whereas you sometimes see with City, and you used to see this with Bielsa's Leeds as well, take the time doing that. I mean, the, I think some of the tweeted a couple of weeks back the Hernandez goal against Stoke in the, the 5-0 at Ellen Road during COVID. And what was really interesting about that was how much the ball just stayed in outside um, Leeds penalty area, back and forward, back and forward, to the point where if you didn't understand what was coming next, you would say, they're going nowhere here. And then suddenly, bang, upfield, ball's there, into Hernandez, back the net, job's done. Liverpool found that really difficult to do, which is why they were hitting Leeds with balls over the top and looking for either runners in behind who, who got the jump on the centre-backs or mistakes from um, centre-backs like the one from Cooper in the second half that, that almost led to a goal. And we're also going out wide where Leeds are clearly vulnerable and, and everybody knows that. So that is quite often what happens. Um, and I don't, I mean, surely Bournemouth will come here with the plan to sit in, do pretty much what Fulham did or tried to do what, what Fulham did. It, it's 
it's unlikely, I think, that they'll go toe-to-toe or try to go toe-to-toe. Um, and it does feel, you know, this season certainly, that teams going toe-to-toe is really what Leeds want. Does it encourage you then to hear these comments from Marsh to show the awareness of what is not happening right for him? You know, if you know what the problem is, you then look to find ways to fix it. I think the the, the sound of flexibility is what you want to hear. Otherwise, you do run the risk of just being stuck down a cul-de-sac, trying the same thing in circumstances where it's not working. And if it's not working, then you do need to think about... I think if it's not working consistently, you know, if you're going through a long run of games where you're not picking up points and you're not getting enough goals, then you do think have to think about what you change and, and what you alter. It's not easy because if Bournemouth do pack in and, and sit deep, it doesn't give you... It gives you plenty of space to play in, in front of them. But in the critical area of the pitch where you want to do damage, it's really congested and it becomes um, it becomes hard to to break through, which I think is why Arsenal having a go, Chelsea having a go, Liverpool under pressure, you know, to be on the front foot at Anfield was kind of good for Leeds because it made a game of it and it let it flow and it made it a bit end to end. And and I think they I think they do need that. Do you expect Bournemouth to sit as deep as Crew? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> talking about the twenty ones here. Yeah. Yeah. It was the most ridiculous game I think I've ever seen for that. And and not to mention the penalty shootout as well. I have to say, it seemed to me to be about at least two or three of those penalties that could have been retakes for a goalkeeper who was about half a mile off his <laughs> off his line. But anyway, it was good fun to good fun to watch. It reminded me a little bit of the video that um, Mark Wilson, who used to commentate for Yorkshire Radio, took of Leeds. I think down at Brighton in the Steve Evans season. Um, certainly there or thereabouts of Leeds shooting in the warm-up and absolutely everything just flying into Rose Ed. It was it was properly bizarre. Um, hard hard to say really without without the game getting going. And my gut feeling is that Bournemouth will you know be very defensive um, and will will limit the risks that they take. And and it would make sense if they did. How do you feel this one's going to go? Is is it is it possible to call this one, or does it just depend on which Leeds turns up? Um, I feel like the same Leeds have been turning up week after week so they're not playing differently I just feel that certain games have been shaped in a way which has allowed Leeds to thrive more than others i.e. the games that have been more open and have been more toe-to-toe and you know I guess more ambitious from the point of view of the opposition I think I, I, I was going to say Leeds win this game I, I feel like they're going to win this game oh, um, no, but, no, but the, thing, no, but the thing is I buried the jinx at Anfield so it's gone so it's going to be about 8-0 no it's, <laughs> no, it's it's surely going to go one of two ways. This Leeds are either going to do Bournemouth comfortably or it's going to develop into another horribly tense afternoon. Let's hope do comfortably is the outcome for this one. Yes. But we'll find out on uh, on Saturday afternoon. You and I will get back together on Monday morning then and bring you the uh, the next instalment of the of the Phil Hay Show where we will reflect on the game against Bournemouth where, yeah, hopefully Phil just win and then we can we can enjoy they, we can enjoy the world cup break a bit more we can probably enjoy the rest of the season a bit more just get it done they do need to win this they need to win this it the pressure is lifted slightly after the result at liverpool because i don't think many people anticipated that but it does revert back to where it was i think if they have a bad day um at ellen road particularly with spurs away to come who are not you know are not the premier league's outstanding side by any means and are beatable um a little bit like liverpool have proven to be in the last few weeks but even so, I think it's still imperative, given what's gone on in the last couple of weeks, that um, Leeds make it to the World Cup in good shape. We shall see. Theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod to sign up for The Athletic. Back on Monday. The Phil Hay Show.